Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. And um, you know, Lord, that especially at this time of year, there's so many other uh, responsibilities and obligations and activities going on that we are easily distracted. I pray a special blessing and protection on those who are not able to be with us, wherever they may be. May you guide them and lead them in the way that they should go. And that you will bless also our study tonight. Though we be fewer in numbers, uh, we know that you're still here in the midst of us. And help us as we dive into the deep things of Daniel chapter 7, that you will open our eyes and to reveal them to us, so that we will be able to grasp this concept, the concepts of this prophecy, that we'll be better prepared for the last days. We love you, Lord. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. More blessings tonight. Otherwise, you have to share the blessings. <laughs> more blessings. <laughs> yeah, more blessings. All right. Uh, I guess some of you weren't here last week. Hajin was here. Claudine, were you not here? And you weren't here. You went to last year? Okay, good. I'm glad you did. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so let me just do a little somewhat of a review then before we move on to the next next section. What I did at the end of last week was I did a, a, a summary, sort of, of the first six chapters. Um, not so much going through all the events again, but looking more at the results and uh, the lessons, so to say, that we learn from each, each chapter. And something that we saw in common, a common thread that we saw within the first six chapters, is that there is a concept that God is vindicated in almost every chapter, I should say. Um, I should say, you can see it in every chapter, but some chapters are clearer than others. And some chapters, it's more of a uh, focus. Uh, For example, this is what I mean. In every chapter, you see that God's people is placed under some sort of a test, some sort of a trial. And depending on the results, if it's a good result, it proves that God is what He claims to be. And it also claims, uh, it also proves that God is just and God is loving and all the rest. It reveals the character of God, it vindicates Him. So in Daniel chapter 1, we see that in Daniel and his friends maintaining the diet that God prescribed. And instead of Uh, bowing down to the idols by eating the food that were offered to them they were subjected to a trial a 10 day test remember that and they had uh, the the head of the eunuchs and the the princes look at them at the end of 10 days and say look compare us with the rest to see if we're any better and because they were faithful to God at the end God was vindicated indirectly in that they were healthier so that their judgment was vindicated but more than that it was a prove, It was proving that God was right. And chapter 2, I mean, it's pretty clear. The wise men of Babylon could not interpret the dream, but Daniel could. Simply proving again, vindicating that God is the Almighty God. And that He is the one that's able to interpret the secret things because He gave the king the dream. And chapter 3, same thing. The Hebrew boys were cast in the fire, but he saw the fourth man walking in, in the midst. He said, oh, I see the Son of God. And at the very end, King Nebuchadnezzar, he proclaimed, there is no God that can save after this sort. Again, God's power is vindicated. Chapter 4, you see Nebuchadnezzar, he was humbled. He turned into a beast for seven years. And at the end of those seven years, he turned around and he glorified God. And he said, you are the Almighty God. Whoever is, hum- uh, whoever is proud, you're able to humble or to abase. So he says, what he says, the word that he said, was able to prove that God was right, to prove that God was just. And in chapter 5, we see uh, the handwriting on the wall, but again, we see also that Daniel was the true prophet that vindicated God. But something a little bit deeper in chapter 5 is that God's word was vindicated, his prophecies were vindicated. Because in chapter, or excuse me, in Isaiah and then Jeremiah, God predicted the downfall of Babylon. He predicted in in Isaiah 45, who would take Babylon? 
he named Cyrus specifically, he also described how it would be taken. He said the, the gates would be open and the river would be dried up. And that's exactly how, how Babylon fell. Uh, they diverted the river. Cyrus took his troops right under the wall because the river went right through the middle of the city. They had gates that blocked sort of like um, an inner wall from the river. And they left the gates open because they were having a feast. So God's prophecies in Daniel chapter 5, or, or the prophecy was proven correct in Daniel chapter 5. And this gives us evidence that all the rest of the prophecies are trustworthy. So God's word was vindicated. Chapter 6, Daniel, in his faithfulness, we mentioned last week that he was an example, an inspired example, written by Ellen White, inspired example of the life of sanctification. So in the, through the life of Daniel, he was able to prove that those who were faithful to God at the very end, even though they were cast in the lion's den, so to say, they were placed within the very grasps of the devil without any mediation or intercession, that they would still be able to stand. And that, at the end, vindicates that God is able to save his servants. So all of these stories, chapters 1 through 6, God's people is placed through a trial or a judgment period or a, a, a test. And when the outcome... Uh, based on the positive outcome, God's name is vindicated. So we drew the conclusion that from chapters 1 through 6, we already mentioned that it describes how God's people are to prepare themselves to stand in the final judgment. Because everything we mentioned in the very first study, everything in Daniel points to the end times, because history repeats itself, and it reaches its climax at the very end. So we see the repetition of history, and that God's people at the last days will repeat the history of what Daniel and his friends went through. Not specifically, but the similar type of experience. So in the very end of time, when God is going, putting his people through the final phases of judgment, the whole point of why God wanted us to learn how Daniel and his friends went through the trials in chap- the first six chapters is so that we too, at the end of time, will be able to vindicate God and His character for the last time. Because I don't know how many of you were there. Some of you were. Uh, I mentioned when I spoke at Avon Hope a couple of weeks ago that the war, the great controversy is over the character of God. The accusations are against the character of God. And once those accusations are proven all false, then this whole thing can be wrapped up and taken care of. So, first six chapters teaching us how to prepare through the life of Daniel and through the preparation, what we can expect, the type of trials that we can be placed through. And at the very end, the purpose for all these trials and the purpose for being prepared for them is in the end to justify God and to prove Him to be right. So that's the first six chapters. That's sort of a, you can say that's the f- first uh, section of the book with six chapters. You have a big title, subdivide and then divide into the smaller chapters. So the last half, which we're starting today in chapter 7, is slightly different in a variety of ways, is that chapter 7 and onwards is primarily dealing with prophecies, signs and symbols and times and you know, images and, and pictures, whereas the first six chapters were just more historical narrative or stories. And um, most of the time, just as a hint, most of the time when you look at a prophecy, it's discussing... Um, it describes time. It's many, many times God gives you a prophecy so that you can understand timings or events that are going to take place. More like setting out the parameters, not so much the details. So the last half of the book of Daniel, based upon my study, is more of a, a um, time frame. It's more like a directional type of thing. Every prophecy is trying to bring your gaze to the right period. And that period of time is the timing of the judgment, the final judgment. So that everything in chapters 1 through 6 will need to be put into action at this time, for this reason, based on the next five or six chapters we're going to go through. All right? So that's... 
that's that. Let's go specifically now to Daniel chapter 7. Um, Daniel chapter 7 is a long chapter. Uh, not so much in, in number of verses, but in more um, the amount of information that's, that's in here. So what we're going to do, we're going to divide it in half. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 can be divided neatly directly in half. There's 28 verses, and verses 1 through 14 can be just sectioned off as, um, I don't know what you want to call it, but it's the vision, the vision and the prophecy that's given, and then the rest of the chapter is explaining the first half of the chapter. So what we're going to do, we're not even going to be able to go through all 14 verses. So we're going to go through as much as we can uh, in the time that we have, and next week we'll pick it up where we left off. And we will probably have to do uh, three weeks on Daniel chapter 7. But we'll see how things go. Alright, so let's do this. Let's go around and let's read chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. We have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 people. So why don't we start with Hajin? And each person can read two verses. And Delver, we're in Daniel chapter 7. We're reading verses 1 through 14. Each person is taking two verses, starting with, with Hajin. Chapter 7. In the first year of the soldier, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, turning up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet of a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After this I saw in the night dreaming, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, but strong and creamy. And it had great iron teeth, it devoured and break in pieces, and can't prevent to do with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of men, and a mouth speaking great things. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and sealed the burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands went to the I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him, given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. All right. <clears throat> this is the first half, and basically, these 14 verses give the whole vision. This is pretty much the whole foundation of the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter just builds on this. So, what do we see here? First, we see 
What does Daniel see, first of all? Before that. All right, so there are four winds of the heaven that strove upon the great sea. So we need to establish what is this. Uh, let, me, let me just give you a principle, first of all. Before we just dissect the symbolism, when you, discuss, when you are um, studying prophecy, any prophecy, there are two things that you must get two vitally important, essential points that you must have in order to rightly interpret this, the vision. And those two things are, mark them in your mind, write it down, you know, highlight it, I don't know where, but you must have these two things. And these two things are, the time, the time that this prophecy takes place, and the location. The two things are the time and the locations. Because the <clears throat> vast majority of prophecies deal with literal things that take place in history at a physical location. Almost 100%, I would say. So the prophecy, if you can simply pinpoint, it's sort of like, a, it's sort of like X and Y axis. If you can just pinpoint the X as time and then the Y as location, you can pretty much pinpoint exactly where, or you can almost always clearly identify what this prophecy is talking about. So, in this chapter, first of all, we're going to find what the time and locations are. Alright, and what are we going to do <clears throat> is, first of all, we're going to observe this. And um, this is the process of thinking that we need to go through. So, first of all, we see who these things are. Alright, we see four beasts. We're not going to try to discover who they are because we need to figure out the time and the location to find out who these beasts are. First, where are they found? Or where did they come from? They come from out of the sea. So therefore, we must conclude that in order for us to determine the location of these beasts, we must determine what the sea is. And then the next is the time. This one is a little bit more tricky. Um, but when you look at the time, you can look at it as the time spectrum, the beginning or the end. Because if you can find the beginning, chances are you'll be able to just go chronologically and figure out the end. Or if you find the end, you can go backwards. So you need to have these stakes, these pillars, to find out what this prophecy is talking about. So now, we're not, we're not sure when the prophecy begins. It simply says, came out of the sea. But we do know when it ends. When is the end of the fourth beast, based on what we've read? <coughs> second coming is a good answer, and that's a safe answer. And that's right. That's a right answer. Um, more specifically, <coughs> the final judgment. And the end of the judgment is the second coming. That's why you're still right. But specifically, until the final judgment. So this fourth beast, this four beasts, they happen, and notice that it says, first I saw a lion, second I saw a bear, and then I beheld and there was a leopard. I mean, it comes in chronological order. It's not he saw four beasts come out of the sea and he's just looking at them one at a time. It's sequential, <coughs> consecutive uh, from what we've read. So the fourth beast, the end of the fourth beast, specifically the end of the little horn of the fourth beast, it ends at the final judgment. So that's the, or the end of the world at the second coming. So there you can establish this beast ends, or all the beasts end at the final judgment. And if you count back with four beasts, then that will give you the beginning beast. So now we need to discover what these beasts are. Let's just look real quickly at verse 17. <coughs> Daniel 7, verse 17. Anyone? Alright, so these beasts, they represent four kings, or just four kingdoms. So four kingdoms, the last kingdom ends at the end of time, so you count back four kingdoms to find a beginning. Now, we figured out the time, and we already know that these represent kingdom. Daniel, the book of Daniel is very good at that. They just tell you, 
a lot of the the you know what these um, symbols mean. So now we need to discover what the winds and the sea is. So first, let's look at Revelation 14, uh, 17. Revelation 17 and verse 15. <coughs> he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the all right. So waters in Bible prophecy represents multitudes, nations, peoples, or large populations of people. So these beasts come out of a place where there is great populations, but it's even more specific. Let's look at uh, Revelation 7, verse 1. 7, verse 1. Let's read to verse 2. And I saw another angel descending from the east, having the seal of the living God, who cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. So these four angels are in charge of hurting the earth and the sea, and they're holding back the winds. So putting two and two together, the four winds is signs of commotion or strife or destruction or wars and, and those type of things. There are a couple more verses. Let's look at them. Jeremiah chapter f uh, 49. <clears throat> Jeremiah 49 verses 36 and 37. Jeremiah 49 verse 36 and 37. 36, yeah. I will bring against Elam the four winds from the four quarters of the heavens. I will scatter them to the four winds, and there will not be a nation where Elam's exiles do not go. I will shatter Elam before their foes, but those who seek their lives, I will bring disaster upon them, even my fierce anger declares the Lord. I will pursue them with a sword until I have made an end of them. So that's, this verse makes it really clear that the four winds, especially, it specifically says the four winds of heaven, uh, is described as, as destructive forces. Um, destruction, war, strife, commotions, this type of activity. So back to Daniel chapter 7. First of all, we see the four winds of the heavens striving across the great sea. So the sea, this multitude of people, four winds representing great strife and wars and commotions, and it is in this environment that these four beasts arise out of the sea, or the four kingdoms. So the location, now just as a note, the location, <clears throat> we don't have to be like pinpointing specifically the, the exact latitude and longitude you know, on the globe, but we're looking at just general, as, as specific as we can, but even if it's just a general description, it's good for us to you know, narrow things down as far as we can. So these four beasts, these four kingdoms, they arise one by one in a location where there are great multitudes of people and they arise through wars and strife and bloodshed or commotions. So do we, does that make sense so far? And that's where we see the first beast. So now we've established the first two most important things. Time and location. And this, the reason why we can do this is now we can eliminate. We can eliminate a lot of things, a lot of options. I mean, th I'm, I'm trying to do this so that next time when you study on your own, you can get the same answers. These, these nations, they come out in the area where there are large populations of people. So this rules out Tasmania and Australia, Greenland, Antarctica, even China. No, these type of places, and it pretty much narrows it down to the old world, Europe, and the Middle East, basically. And then it lasts until the end of time. So these are worldwide nations, because they, they exist in these large places, 
populated by no great numbers of people. And they are kingdoms that last, or sequentially last until the end of time. So this rules out a lot of other nations that people might come up with. You know, I don't know what some of the options are, but um, like I said, it can't be the Aborigines, it can't be the Native Americans here, it can't be those type of people. This must be some sort of great nation that arose and great multitude of people, and this also means that there must be some sort of historical documentation of these nations. They're not just some obscure you know, tribe somewhere. This is a great political power, and we can narrow things down. But we're going to narrow things down even more as we describe um, each of these nations. So let's go to verse 4. <clears throat> verse 3 says, And four great beasts came up uh, from the sea, diverse one from another. Verse 4, The first was like a what? A lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. All right, first, it was like a lion. Now, believe it or not, lions are described in the Bible. Let's go to um, Jeremiah, chapter 50. Jeremiah, chapter 50. Can one person please read Jeremiah, chapter 50, verse 43 and 44? And then another person reads Jeremiah 51, 35 to 38. Uh, Jeremiah 51, <clears throat> 35 to 38. The violence done to me and to my flesh be upon Babylon, that the inhabitants of Zion say, and my blood upon the inhabitants of Chaldea shall Jerusalem say, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will plead thy case and take vengeance for thee, and I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. And Babylon shall become heaps, a dwelling place for dragons, an astonishment and a hissing without an inhabitant. They shall, they shall war together like lions. They shall yell as lions. Well, so based upon these two verses, what nation does a lion represent? Babylon. And um, this last verse that we just read, Jeremiah 51, I had the whole thing read um, just so you can see, the, this was a prophecy that God prophesied that Babylon would really never be rebuilt. And you can look at history, it's never been inhabited ever since. But, um, good. So the lion represents Babylon. We can settle that real clearly from the Bible. And um, common sense-wise, we can think back to King Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 2 and chapter 4 and even chapter 5. He's mentioned as the king of kings. The Lord has given him a dominion over all the earth. Even chapter 4, I think. And so you see this as um, a good representation of a lion. Uh, I didn't bring a picture, but I went to the British Museum once and I saw a piece of the Wall of Babylon. And believe it or not, the, on the gates is, on either side, are, are lions with eagle's wings. That is literally the... Um, not a state bird, <laughs> but uh, what's the what's the word? It's not a mascot, but the the nation's animal. Like we have the bald eagle, but I forgot the the name. Do you know Norman? I mean, it's a national symbol. National symbol. There's a specific term. It's not. Yeah, you you understand what I mean. But that's the that's the it, that's the animal that they use to represent themselves. Lion with eagle's wings. Amazing. Some people, they try to argue there weren't any lions in Babylon. Well, evidently there were, uh, because Daniel was cast in lion's den. Anyway, so we see a lion, 
and has eagle's wings. Now, what do eagle's wings represent? Let's go to Habakkuk chapter 1. Now, this one I'll give you a little bit more time to find this book. Habakkuk, the Minor Prophets, near the end, after Nahum, before Zephaniah, before Haggai. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 6-8. through eight. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land, to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as an eagle that hasteth to eat. That's good. Uh, you see here, um, I've had you read all that because just because verse 6 specifically mentions the Chaldeans. So we know it's talking about the same, same nation. Uh, but even if it's not that specific, we can still get what eagles represent. Eagles here represent uh, the speed of, at which, with which the military comes upon its prey. It says, as an eagle that hasteth to eat. Um, their military speed and capability was tremendous. So this lion, although a lion is quite fast already and quite a powerful predator, with eagle's wings, the king of the birds, uh, they can fly quickly to victory and to defeat of the enemies. So we see here, Daniel sees a lion with eagle's wings, a royal creature, definitely. King of the birds, king of the beasts, you know, powerful military. And we know it, it represents, um, we represents Babylon. <clears throat> but then it says, I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked. So the wings of eagles or eagles wings represented their military speed and, and accomplishments and power so when the wings were plucked off what does that mean? That's taking perhaps a, one step a little too far um, but just simply we can simply say their military power was removed so I, even removed might be too strong of a word but they no longer had the speed and the, the victories and the, and the great expeditions and accomplishments that they had in the past. So those golden years were over, so, so to say. And then what happened? And it was lifted up from the earth. Now, just without going any farther, who in the Bible does this remind you of, this phrase, and he was lifted up? Okay, you guys are thinking of, okay, let me, let me put it this way. Who that was not, you know, on the side of God lifted himself up? Lucifer. So Lucifer, because you guys are, you guys are thinking on the right track, but <clears throat> we're looking at a, at a nation, at a nation that is, that is uh, antagonistic. To God, so these nations are not described as favorable in God's sight. So, thinking of people that were not on God's side, who lifted himself up, and we see that it was Lucifer. And why did he? Why was he lifted up? Do you remember? Why was Lucifer lifted up? You can look in Ezekiel twenty-eight. Verse 17. The hearts have been proud on account of their beauty, mm -hmm. and the delights of their wisdom because of their splendor. So he to the earth and made a spectacle of me before kings. Okay, my Bible simply says, Thine heart was lifted up. Uh, that also means you became proud because of thy beauty. 
So he, was, he became proud, so to say. His beauty caused him to become proud. Or lifted up simply means that he became proud. And when do we see that happen in the history of Babylon? In the feast, exactly. You remember chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled greatly, and he learned his lesson. But then in chapter 5, the whole point of Daniel's little sermonette to Belshazzar was, you knew all of this, all that happened to your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, but you still did not humble yourself. Or if you look at what was not said, that was said, was that you are still proud. You're too proud. And because you're proud, you know, this destruction is coming upon you. So this is detailing now, this line is detailing now when it was lifted up, its wings plucked, it was lifted up from the earth, it's describing now the reign of Belshazzar. It is the end of the reign of, of Babylon. And it was lifted up from the earth. And, uh, okay, let's, let's go one more phrase before I give you the next verse. And it says, and made stand upon the feet as a man. Now, what does that mean? I mean, in your mind's eye, what do you see happening to the lion? It's, it's now standing on its hind legs, right? Now, can a lion balance itself like a human on its hind legs? So what must necessarily happen before long? That lion's going to fall. So this lion was lifting himself up, representing it was proud, but it can't stand because it will fall. Because a lion can't do that. So let's look at the next verse. It's Proverbs 16, verse 18. So that describes clearly what we've been talking about. But just to have a Bible verse to solidly um, establish that. And finally, the last description is that a man's heart was given to it. And that's also a, you know, the opposite is also true. If a man's heart was given to it, that, that means the lion's heart must have been taken from it, right? So let's look at a few verses. Um, can one person please read Genesis 8, verse 21? <clears throat> and another person, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. And the last one, I'd like us to read it together. Um, so once we read the other two, I'll give you the last one. That one's, the last one's a little bit trickier, but let's look at it. So whoever gets Genesis first. 8, verse 21. Okay, just from that verse, what is God's description of the human heart? Evil. Evil from his childhood, it says. So that's the type of heart that this line was given, a man's heart. Okay, next verse, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can that? So the heart is not only evil, but it's wicked and it's deceitful. That's a key word, deceitful. Next verse, let's, glo- uh, let's look in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 32. I'll read, the, okay, go ahead. I guess I had another verse in mind that, that was tricky. This one's not that tricky. <laughs> but um, let no man's heart fail him or lose heart. What does that word, is, what is that word synonymous with in this circumstance? Courage. Courage, exactly right. So the description of the man's heart we've seen so far, 
we see that first, the heart of a man is evil, it's wicked, and it's deceitful. But then the heart is also synonymous with a man's courage, or I can say the antithesis of that is his cowardice. So lion's heart, we often use it as bravery or very courageous, valiant. But that lion's heart was taken away. So the courage of this nation was taken away and a man's heart or man's cowardice was given to it and its wickedness, its evilness, and its evilness is not a word, is it? And, um, and its deceitfulness. So all of these things was given to this nation whereas it's proud, it's, 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 it was proud and then its courage was taken away. And again, this is describing Belshazzar. Belshazzar was, he was, de- he was deceptive, uh, his own heart deceived him because he knew intellectually all that happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. But yet somehow in his own heart, he convinced himself that he was going to be all right. I mean, I can't prove that from the Bible, but we can assume that. Or else why would he do what he did in chapter 5? And then he goes to the next step and, uh, you know, he wickedness and, and, and he was guilty of, of blaspheming God's vessels. So that clearly describes Belshazzar. But now, what about the courage? This is why we were given this verse in Daniel 5 and verse 6. This is one of my favorite verses in this, in this chapter because it's so descriptive. And believe it or not, that's actually prophesied in Isaiah, that, that the loins of the king will be loosened before the fall of Babylon. But based on chapter 7, it specifically clearly reveals to us that this king lost all courage. He was scared and he was afraid. So described perfectly, this first beast, this first beast is Babylon. Clearly, from all of the, all of the different... Uh, descriptions that we have. So now why go into all this detail for, the, for this beast? This is simply the reason. Once we have established the first beast, and then, so that's the starting point, right? We're talking about time, we talked about time and location before. So the first beast is Babylon, and it ends at the final judgment. So therefore, we just need to look at history and just fill in the blanks. Even without looking at the rest of the beast, we can pretty much guess what the next nations are coming are. So you see, prophecy is not that difficult as long as we follow our common sense and set the proper parameters around ourselves. So starting with Babylon, what's the next nation? Medo-Persia after that. Greece and after that, Rome. And then you remember in Daniel chapter 2, this is why Daniel chapter 2 and 7 are so closely intertwined, is that in chapter 2 we see that the legs of iron represents Rome, right? And how long does the iron last? All the way till the, yeah, all the way until the toes, right? All the way until the end. So therefore, based on chapter two, because we already see the first three nations must line up, this last nation simply lasts until the end of time. And so we know that the final beast in Daniel chapter four must be the kingdom of Rome, because it lasts all the way until the end of time. That makes perfect sense. But we're gonna go deeper into that next week. We're not gonna have time to go into all of it. So now that we've established Babylon, we can spend a little less time um, on the next two beasts. And uh, we're already like over time, but let's just go through the bear and the leopard, and then we'll pick it up um, with the fourth beast next week. All right, so let's just go through the bear real quickly. Um, verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. So the second beast rises up. And the second beast is described as a bear. And it's raised up on one side. I don't know how that looks. Maybe it's just one side like this or on its hind legs. I've seen it drawn both ways. But simply put, looking at history, the Medo-Persian Empire was divided in you know, it was not divided. It was actually a conglomeration of two political nations. There were the kingdom of the Medes, and there were the kingdom of the Persians. 
and the uplifting of one side of the bear simply means that one part of the nation was more powerful or more prominent, more influential than the other, and that was the Persians. And there's actually a little bit more detail given about this very concept in chapter 8. So this bear is raised up on one side, and it had an imbalance of power, so to say. And the, the Medes were less powerful than the Persians. That's what's described here. And uh, it is described as having three ribs in the mouth, in the teeth of it. And <clears throat> the rest of this verse is describing what's in the mouth of the bear. So what does the mouth represent? Uh, it doesn't say mouth, but let, let me say, read this. The teeth, yeah, and they said thus unto it, arise and devour much flesh. So based on that verse, uh, based on that phrase, devour much flesh, what does the bear devour with? Its teeth. So what does the teeth must necessarily represent? It's what it devours or it destroys with, right? So it's describing its military power. But more than that, there are three ribs in the mouth. So therefore, military, its military must have conquered whoever these three ribs belong to. So therefore, we must simply, logically, using a common sense reason, that the three ribs must represent some sort of political entity. Because, you know, what do you use a military power to destroy? You know, you don't use it to destroy... I don't know, uh, 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 yeah, like a forest, you know, it's not going to be like destroying some sort of natural you know, artifact, it's going to be destroying some entity, human corporation of some sort. So it must be some sort of organization and three ribs, so we look at history. What did the Medo-Persian Empire destroy before they became this nation? The three ribs then simply represents the three main areas that they had to conquer. First of all is Lydia. And that's the um, province, so to say, that is the north of Babylon. So we have the Euphrates here and the Tigris and the Fertile Crescent Mesopotamia area and the north of that is Lydia. And then we have Babylon and then in the south we have Egypt. So these three areas were conquered by Medo-Persia before it became the military power and the world leader that it was. So that's what the three ribs represent, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. And it makes perfect sense so far. And a lot of this goes back to history. And I recommend a book by Uriah Smith called Daniel Revelation, if you haven't had a chance to read it. Or you can look at um, God Cares. It's by a couple names, but it's the two-book volume by Seymour and Maxwell. Those are pretty good in terms of giving you the historical uh, evidence for all of this that I'm saying. But now, there's one thing that is even more significant that I want to bring out is that why did this power destroy using this concept of devouring? Because a bear can kill in a variety of ways. You know, a bear can, you know, eat the thing. It can just you know, break its neck, it can just claw it to death, you know, it can sit on it, I don't know. But the bear could have done a variety of things to destroy this nation. But specifically it was used, it was, it, it, it uses um, appetite, you can say. It, it devoured the other nations. Now what does that represent? Now when you eat something, what happens to that object which you eat? It becomes a part of you, exactly right. And you're going to look at the rest of the prophecies and we see that this word devour will come up again. And uh, in chapter 6, we remember that Daniel was like third in command in Babylon, but then he gets shifted or he got assimilated into the kingdom of Medo-Persia as the second in command. So there was some sort of assimilation. There is a, a carryover between Babylon and Medo-Persia. I have to study this more, but from my personal study, based on the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy, that is that when Medo-Persia devoured, or the word devour, when a nation devours another kingdom, it simply means that that nation absorbs the culture and perhaps the philosophies 
and the and the practices of the other nation to become a part of themselves. So it's not so much that they destroyed the other kingdom, but it's more like it was absorbed and attached and became a part of this next kingdom. Does that make sense? And that will be significant um, next week. More, spe- more significant next week. So the bear assimilated Babylon into its system. So now it's, you can sort of say it's a lion-bear combination, although it doesn't say that. So, that. so there we see the second beast is like a bear. And third, we see the leopard. And lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. Now, what is the, what's the first word that comes to your head when you see all of those descriptions? Leopard and four wings of a fowl. Very fast, right? We, earlier we read in Habakkuk that the same text that describes the eagles hasting to the eat, it also uses the word leopard, describing the speed. So first, it has characteristics of a leopard, which is speed, and then it has wings, but it has two pairs of wings. It has four wings, so it's really fast. I mean, that's, that's basically the whole description of this, of this beast, is that it's incredibly fast. And obviously, we already established that the next kingdom is Greece. And even if we didn't, the next chapter, chapter 8, will tell us clearly that it's the kingdom of Greece. Now, the speed, we, I don't need to give you a history lesson. Alexander the Great conquered the then-known world by the time he was 33. And um, that's pretty incredible. That's very fast, to say the least. Uh, I don't think it's ever been done since. I don't believe so. At least maybe my history is uh, rusty. But it's definitely the first, and it's definitely a record that was set. So, without going into too much detail, it was fast and has four wings. And the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given unto it. Now, the four heads, what does a head represent? What do you do in your head? You think, or it's the leader of the head, the head, or of the body. The head is the leader of the body. So this beast has four heads. Now, simply, logically speaking then, that means this beast has four leaders. Um, the next chapter will describe more clearly Alexander the Great and all that. But this beast, or the description of the Bible, wants us to focus on it having four heads. Now, this is what happened. I don't know if you all remember this from history. I'm sure you learned about it. But that Alexander the Great, he conquered the then-known world, and then he got drunk one day, he had a fever, and then he died. And then they asked him as he was laying on his deathbed, who will, the na- who will your kingdom go to? And as his parting words, he said simply, the strongest. So he never left an heir, and um, he never verbally or officially declared an heir, although he had a young son. And he had a brother, I believe, brother or brother-in-law. Immediately after his death, within a few weeks, I think, or a few days, um, his whole family was murdered, his wife, his brother, and his son. So that left no existing heir to Alexander the Great at all. So his four commanders, four top-ranking generals, divided the nation amongst themselves. And there were specifically only four. And this were, these were their names. Okay, and the region that they ruled. First is Cassander, and I will mention this very clearly, and that is that it's important in the next chapter. This is the reason why I'm giving you these names, just so you have it in your back of your head. So when we come to chapter, uh, chapter 8, then you will understand why it's more important. So Cassander, he ruled in the west. Lysimachus, he ruled in the north. Ptolemy, ruled in the south, and Seleucus ruled in the east. So these were the four kings, or the four generals that were, you know, kingdom, Alexander's kingdom was divided amongst. And this is very significant. And this is why. Why did Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, what demanded, or what mandated that the kingdom of Alexander divided into four? Why was it not three, or five, or six, or you know that the kingdom of Rome is divided into ten. I mean, why specifically four? I don't know why, but that simply proves the, the authenticity of the prophecies of God and also how clear that He is 
You know, he doesn't make mistakes. He specifically said four, and there were four, and four divisions. And the next last point that I want to make tonight is that this leopard, it did not devour the previous beast. We mentioned the bear devoured, and we saw the remnant of the you know, animals that they devoured. Three ribs. But this leopard, it simply says dominion was given unto it. And it was, it did not specifically use the word devour. Now what's so significant about that? And this is simply this. This is, this is where I still need to study a little bit more, so don't quote me on it. But this is what I, what I have seen based on my personal um, understanding. Medo-Persia, we can see clearly from Daniel chapter 6 that there was a significant amount of assimilation of the Babylon kingdom. Babylon, in fact, was not really destroyed. The actual city was maintained. It was not destroyed uh, totally in the, um, at the end of the siege in chapter 5. It was destroyed later on. But there was a great amount of assimilation within between the Medo-Persian and the Babylonian Empire. However, what do you remember about the Greece Empire? What about their culture? Very unique. And um, the Greek culture, perhaps, is the most prevalent culture in Western society today. I mean, everything about our nation somehow is related to the Greece culture. The Greek culture. So the Greek or the Hellenistic culture was so strong that it actually overtook whatever culture that they entered into. Because, for example, using um, China as an example, when the Japanese came in during the Second World War into China, the Japanese did not impose their culture upon the Chinese. In fact, the culture of the Chinese implanted itself upon the Japanese. And that is probably what happened between Babylon and Medo-Persia. But when Greece came, the Greece culture overshadowed the Medo-Persian culture. You don't hear very, you don't see, you don't hear very many things about a, a Persian architecture, although there's some, or Persian mathematics, Persian philosophy, Persian math, uh, Persian I don't know history, Persian rugs, sure, Persian Persian cats too. Yeah, those are. That's about it. But when you think about the Greek influence, there's Greek mathemati- um, mathematics, Greek philosophy, Greek astronomy, Greek um, architecture, Greek words that carried over to all the languages now. I mean, you think of the Greek culture, political system, that's right. They, they were really the first uh, Democrats or Republicans. And that's... You know, the Greek culture set the stage for modern civilization, really. And so that's why I believe it did not say it devoured the previous nation. Because in a sense it did, in the sense that it took over the nations, but it did not allow the other culture to blanket their culture. In fact, their culture overshadowed theirs. Now, like I said, don't quote me on it. It sure sounds convincing to me. Um but I need to have a little bit more backup. So that's all we're going to do tonight. We went through the first three beasts, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And we also established the time and the location in which we can safely place all four of these beasts. So what are the to- what's the time period again? What's the range we established? It starts with Babylon, and when does it end? The final judgment. So it must fit within that time frame. It can't be back in the time of Abraham, can't be back in the time of Noah, you know, it can't be back then. But then, where do these nations arise from? The Great Sea, but what does that represent? Populated area with a lot of wars and strife. So with those two criteria, we've already narrowed down to this period of history between Babylon and the Final Judgment. And we already have gone through Daniel chapter 2, so we should know it quite well. So today we've just been filling in some blanks and um, making some more blanks to fill in next week and also once we get to chapter 8. So 
Next week, we'll continue with chapter 7. Um, and this is what's going to happen. We are going to have... I haven't even discussed it with Norman. But um, we're going to cover January chapter 7 this week and the next two weeks. And then I'll be gone for three weeks uh, for the Romanian mission trip. And then once I get back in July, then we'll pick it up from there. Unless unless nobody's going to be here. So um, talk to me afterwards or next week, and uh, I will ask like when is a good time to continue on this study. Because I didn't want to speed through it and um, leave out so many gaps uh, because I know this Bible study is going to continue sometime later. Um, and I didn't want to, you know, not have a plan for the future. So it may not be me that teaches, you know, next school year. However, um, we'll do whatever we can between now and then. So with that, if you have any questions, just save them after we pray. And um, if you have some comments or questions about starting when the Bible study is going to start up again after the, the intermission in a few weeks, then you can talk to me about that later too. All right, so why don't we kneel for prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this amazing prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. We see that you are a God of details, you are a particular God and that you don't make mistakes. And as we see that your prophecies in the past have been fulfilled, we recognize the importance of understanding them so that we will not be um, misled in the future. Help us to have a deeper understanding of these things as we continue to study your word today and um, ongoing weeks. We love you, Lord, and please be with those who are not, be, who are not able to be with us. Uh, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.